You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, what news and articles caught our attention, and of course where we also attempt to answer all of your questions. So let me start, as I usually do, by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Mort. How are you doing this Sunday in December? Good. It's a wet and relatively cold Sunday, but uh, looking forward to some quiet Christmas days. So doing fine. How are you? Very well on my side. Yeah. Yeah. Doing great. Uh, in Virginia, cold. And uh, be back to Florida tomorrow. And I'm back in uh, Copenhagen. So it is uh, it is wet, windy, and uh, yeah, not very nice actually for Christmas. But there we are. So such is life. By the way, if you're tuning in for the first time, let's just uh, say welcome to you as well. And um, we hope for the next hour or so we're going to keep you informed and maybe entertained about uh, the systematic uh, investment world. And just want to say we appreciate you tuning into our podcast today. In terms of kind of the, the quick review um, for this week, not much uh, from my side except that um, in some sense when you look back and you think of the difference a year make, um, we could of course... Uh, say that, well, in terms of trend following performance, 2019 has been kind of the complete reverse of 2018. But that's not really what caught my eye this week in terms of the difference um, we've seen in the past 12 months. Because 12 months ago, there was zero uh, US junk bonds being issued in December. And this December 2019, we've just seen 20 billion come to the market. And it's heading towards a record year of $270 billion worth of junk bonds hitting the market in the U.S. And I think that just is a it's a clear indication of this um, uh, search for yield that we see so many investors uh, trying to find and clearly where they're going out in terms of more risk on the credit side, more risk on the liquidity side. And I know there's a great paper out this week from AQR that we're going to dig into um in a few minutes. So I'm going to leave it there, but, uh, and I'm sure you and I, Moritz, when we go through the uh, kind of the market activity, we'll, we'll pick up a few other things. But yeah, so not, not really much in terms of uh, a market review, other than I just noticed how much of a difference a year had made in, in kind of the junk bond uh, side of, of finance. So um, I know we missed you last week, uh, Moritz, I think. And so we're uh, obviously always keen to hear how things are working out on your side. Things have been going going okay, I'd say. I guess since we last spoke, uh, the November numbers for me is is up about two percent, and uh, December is up a bit as well. Not that much yet, but uh, up to now, it's it's an okay month, good month. Equity markets still, I mean, the moves to the upside they seem kind of like relentless. Um, sometimes you sit there and you go like, well, there needs to be this odd day where there is a stronger correction, but you know. There you go. We don't forecast anything. It hasn't happened yet. Losing a bit of money on the bonds. Um, still long, the bonds. Not as long as they used to be, but still long. And um, and those markets have been, you know, sliding down a bit or moving sideways, you know, sliding down a bit. So that's cost some money. But nothing to complain about too much. Uh, we're getting to the last uh, few days of that year. Eight, nine more days to go. Be very, you know could still happen for that year to be a negative year, never say never, but uh, it looks as if it's going to be, you know, between plus five and plus eight, that that should be the outcome for that year, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Not bad at all. I remember you, I can't remember if you made money last year, you didn't lose very much compared to the yep. industry. So yeah. Like I say, I, I cannot complain. And then for whatever reason, the 1st of January is when we all turn back the clock to zero and the game starts again. <laughs> Um, and everybody resets and they're off to the races. 
Right. We're we're never better than our last. Uh, well, it should be one. You know, our last years or decade performance. But it seems like it's getting shorter and shorter in terms yes. of how we get judged for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the same thing on our side. I mean, of course, these relentless equity markets. Um, you know, were received by delight from our point of view. Our strategies, long equities, so that clearly helped um, put in a positive week for us, a positive month, positive year, of course, still. So so that's all fine. The biggest culprit in the portfolio this week was actually Coco. I think Coco lost some 6 or 7% for the week, so that caught uh, our positions uh, off guard a little bit. Currency is pretty flat. Mexican peso adding a little bit, the euro adding a little bit, but then offset by Aussie dollars, British pounds, so uh, nothing overall from that sector fixed income i would say overall flat uh i mean we still have a few uh longs here and there but i think the week was pretty flat uh made a bit of money in energy uh i guess now that they're moving up and we flipped our positions a little while ago so uh so that's helping out i think for us the most difficult part of the portfolio this week was really uh, many of the other commodities grains where we've been short but of course with some uh, renewed interest in uh, you know in that side then um, yeah that's it so nothing dramatic i would say as we head into the last week or so um, but uh, yeah nice if we can keep this going for the last uh, few days of the of the year what about you uh, jerry of course equities are in focus in in many respect i know it's also something that or oh, I guess all our listeners know by now that it's something that is close to your heart. So how how was how was the week for you? Uh, it's pretty quiet there. I mean, some of the stocks are making new highs, and I don't think I have any shorts left. Uh, a couple, maybe one, but all the shorts, of course, are just waiting to become losers for most of this year. So um, diversification is fun, but kind of not worth it if you're going to lose on every trade. So the shorts have not worked out for us. It's the benefit of trading indices is that uh, you never get you never get out of anything, you never get short, you just long all the time. And so it works really well when the market's going up. Uh, the diversification that you get from the single names is not uh, helpful all the time. But I would say that uh, what stood out for me this week is uh, volatility in palladium was up a lot and it was down a lot. It looks like uh, bean oil rally continues. That's the strong the long in the grain markets, the rest of them are kind of shortish, but uh, rallying. And uh, disappointing to see coffee not take off. It looked like it was going to go to the moon. That was a big one. Um, so that had some impact on our performance this week. A lot of volatility, a big fight going on. Is coffee going to go up or is it going to keep going down like it has been for quite a while now? Yeah. Do you trade Tesla, by the way? Yeah, I went from short to long Tesla. You can just look at the chart. It's not difficult to see. So, you know, sometimes you get a little pessimistic on some of these companies. You know, you can't help but be, you know something, you read something, you hear something. So uh, I was like, oh, God, God, I like Tesla, but is it ever going to go up? Then all of a sudden, wow, goes skyrocketing. And I guess that news about the, the truck kind of went away probably due to some sort of earnings thing going on. So it's just kind of funny to uh, watch these markets and hear something about them, but really don't pay much attention to the, the fundamentals too much. I mean, it's interesting to me, not because I have no insight or, or, or knowledge about these things, but I have, of course, noticed over the last uh, year or two the enormous amount of attention that Tesla attracted and, and, and how you build up these two camps of the people who think it, it's one big Ponzi scheme almost and suggesting that they're not producing the amount of cars and what, what have you. And obviously they're the ones with all the big short positions. And then you have this uh, colorful uh, CEO not helping um, kind of remove those uh, fears. And then, of course, you still have people who says this is a revolutionary company. It's going to change the world and you just need to own it and and, and so on and so forth. And I think it's very interesting to see how they both kind of got caught. I mean, clearly the long-sided uh, supporters of, of Tesla it had to go through a really painful period uh, for a while uh, where the shorts uh, look pretty good. And now the shorts looks uh, awful uh, with Tesla making new all-time highs. 
And and I think it it's a good example of how not being involved in the story and just looking at the price to a large extent is is a pretty good uh, way of of looking at things rather than rather than falling in love with one narrative or the other uh, only to get disappointed either way. And doesn't this go for everything, not just Tesla? Tesla is the poster child. Everybody seems to be looking at the thing, but um, I guess it applies to every name that we would be trading. Um, just distance yourself from from all the news, like Jerry's saying, fade the news and uh, follow the price. I mean, I don't have my hands involved in Tesla. Sometimes when I look at the chart, it feels like it's probably a good thing that I don't have my hands in there. I would have gotten burned a couple of times because it has such crazy moves, but um, just follow the price. It's really an emotional story, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, it's just everything we do, it, it uh, really helps. Because uh, Tesla could be problematic to a lot of people for many reasons. Uh, it's volatile. It's a big stock. It has a lot of choppiness. You know, and so just the idea that we trade a lot of markets, and so it's not going to be a big position. And then we're going to size it based upon its volatility. So once again, it's not going to be a big deal you know, we're going to make that decision on which way to go with it, short or long or flat, based upon the price and stuff. So it's really turned something that could be sort of anxiety-producing into like a, a nothing. You know, it's one of a bunch of positions. And so it goes a long ways. It makes a lot of money. We'll make a little bit of money because it's just one of many positions. And so it really is a good example of uh, seemingly problematic ideas or markets that you are looking at can kind of fit right in, and they just become almost a nothing as far as, um, you know, critical decision-making, you know, everything. Uh, you don't want any of these trades and markets to be sort of um, a big decision. You know, it's, it's a small, small, small decision. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. All right, um, why don't we jump into uh, the various uh, topics that you uh, picked up in, in your uh, Twitter feed this, uh, this past week, uh, Jerry, I know. As I alluded to early on, that there will be something um, relating to, I think, a much bigger discussion, which we'll probably dig into. But let's let's see what you got. Well, I mean, I think uh, we can start with the Cliff Asness letter email. It was short, but it was really funny. Uh, he's really a funny, witty, and um, he blocked me, so he doesn't have a lot of patience. And uh, it was about private equity, and he kind of like makes fun of it a little bit. And I liked it, and I tweeted four different. Or, yeah, four different tweets. So I'll start, I'll read my first one and you guys can chime in and you can tell me what you thought was interesting about all of this goings on with Cliff. And uh, so I started by saying, what if, or this is my quote uh, from the article, from the letter, what if investors are willing to pay a higher price and accept a lower expected return for holding illiquid investments? Consider private equity. Could big time multi year illiquidity and its oft accompanying, accompanying price opacity actually be a feature, not a bug. And we've talked about this, where sophisticated investors kind of might favor an investment like private equity, ignore that it's sort of correlated to equity. And, you know, if they're just not getting bombarded with mark to market all the time and facing uh, the drawdowns like they would with CTAs. So my big question is, um, rather than criticizing it, why don't we try to figure out a way to make that a feature of our programs that uh, we're not we're just not going to tell people you know their profit and loss as often as we do now i mean i'm not being funny either it sounds like a really good idea i mean and, and it would be so easy right we could just say hey look there's a lockup uh, we only produce monthly nafs or annual nafs right or if you want to get out there's a gate and then there's like a five percent um five percent um backloaded fee that you need to pay in order to get out all that type of stuff but then it's kind of like, really? We're trading futures markets and all of that stuff is liquid on a daily basis. And it's it would be a massive mismatch, right? That we would kind of like lock people up and uh, and at the same time trade instruments, underlying instruments, which are so liquid. Um, so I thought about this article and I, I agree with, you know, the what Cliff calls the um, illiquidity discount that people are paying a higher fee in the case of private equity. They have higher fees than we CTAs have on average, generally. And they pay that higher fee, um, which means they end up worse than leveraged small cap stocks and yet better 
because the leveraged small cap stocks they would be unable to hold over a longer period of time because of all those massive drawdowns and the high volatility and the private equity they're forced to hold because they cannot get out. And I thought, like having read this paper, we're doing a lot in terms of educating our investors on how trend following works. And we'd like to be as transparent as we can or to the extent that it makes sense for us, you know, educating people about, you know, using price as an input and following the trends and why this is good. Maybe some of the educational focus that we put down has to uh, start focusing more on holding on to the thing. And maybe it's kind of like, maybe we should stop writing monthly newsletters about our performance. Maybe, it, you know, should only be once a year, write an annual letter and uh, tell people, tell our investors that they shouldn't be looking at the thing too actively. Um, maybe we do tell them that, but then we also speak a lot about how trend following works and blah, 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 blah. And kind of like you can follow it step by step and uh, implement it. Maybe we need to focus more on telling them not to look at it all too much and just focus on other things in your life. You know, see it as an investment, give it to us, give it to you, and don't worry much about it. No, I mean, of course, not surprisingly, I'm, uh, of course, of the same opinion, but, but maybe from a slightly different point of view, meaning if we broke down each component of what we do, what trend following is all about, you know, on a like-for-like -like basis against many strategies, I think it's very hard to beat. Um, we, we know that. We talk about the value of diversification, the longs and the shorts and the liquidity and all of that. And people people have clearly forgotten that the only way they could really raise cash during the financial crisis when they looked at their hedge fund portfolio was from the CTAs. I mean, we were there when they needed us, but they just haven't needed us the last 12 years because there hasn't been much of a crisis. There hasn't been any crisis. So maybe, and this is not to sound um, arrogant or anything like that, but you, you, let's put it this way. I mean, if people are stupid enough to put money into illiquid strategies and lock them up forever and all of that stuff and then start complaining during the next crisis uh, about their returns. I mean, I think, frankly, they deserve to lose lose money and get caught because it's not that there isn't any, you know, uh, information out there that clearly or makes it clear the value of diversification, et cetera, et cetera, and the value of liquidity. It's not like we haven't seen the need for liquidity from time to time, right? It's also why I picked up on this point about junk bonds. I mean, the massive amount of junk bonds uh, being issued, and if and and truly, if people are stupid enough to pay, uh, you know, silly prices. I mean, in Europe, we have I think more than fifteen junk bonds that pays negative interest rates. I mean, I can't believe why anyone would buy a junk bond that that costs you money to own. It's the ultimate oxymoron, a high-yield bond, high-yield with negative interest rates. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 so I think at some point we have to just be you know, frank about it and say, if, if you want to do that, well, just don't come complaining when something goes wrong. And um, I mean, we'll, we'll probably say we told you so, but it, it's not because we want to you know, sound arrogant. It's just that it is so obvious that there's something at some point where you need to just say, no, it's just not worth it. I'm not getting a premium for what I'm giving up. And I think that goes, as, as you mentioned, I mean, I think certainly private, I mean, there's also a reason why I think some of the largest, I think the Europe's, European or the largest private equity firm in Europe is doing an IPO next year, not long from now. Why do you, th why do you think people, are, why do you think they're now trying to sell some of their business to people? They're, they're normally pretty good at picking the date. Exactly. They're, we're getting close to the high in all of this stuff. Yet, a lot of people are just keep pouring money into it. Um, but but here's the, I think, the good side of all of this, uh, frankly, I think, is so I think Clevasness was making the point that by not giving them a chance to get out, they, they end up holding on to their investments for a longer period of time. And of course, we know and we pray that people will do the same for all of their investments because unlike most things in life, if you want to, you know, with with your investments, you should probably do the opposite, meaning if you want to get into shape, you should be active and go to the gym every day. But with investments, you need to be very little active. You just have very long-term horizons. So if, if illiquidity helps people to 
become more long-term, yeah, I mean, you could say we should find ways of restricting their access to the money, but I just don't think it's a good idea. It would be better if they could work that out themselves and say, well, if I look at the long-term returns of CTAs, if I look at how they add value to a portfolio, I shouldn't worry about what the score is after 10 years because I'm this is a 40-year game for me, right? We obviously have to continue to encourage people to look at this for, uh, for you know for the long run but all the evidence and we come back to this so many times in our conversation there's not a shred of evidence to suggest that it doesn't add value to put it in a portfolio and if it adds value to put it in a portfolio in the long run and at the same time it's super liquid and we are there if you really need it what's not to like about it well it's going to add a lot more value the more you add into it and stop uh, looking at it as uh, this sort of strategy that it's just a few percent. You know, you if you want 50% stocks or 60% stocks, then you should be safe and trend follow those stocks. That's going to give you more crisis alpha than adding a little bit of CTA. The little, adding a little bit of CTA doesn't add up at all. So, But using trend and systematic approach to all of your equities and then all of your bonds you become immune again. You become a superhero with superpowers when you're taking small losses and you're letting your profits run and you're using trailing stops. Then you don't have to invest this little meaningless position into CTAs. And then you can throw some commodities in as well uh, with this proven strategy. So that's what needs to break the dam of all this illogic. But listen to the words that he uses that, that are so fun and funny and uh, so critical what if illiquid, very infrequently, and inaccurately priced investments made them better investors? This essentially allows them to ignore and not panic or redeem such investments, giving low measured volatility and very modest paper drawdowns. It's really funny, uh, the, the words he uses to criticize, and it sounds almost like he's not criticizing. But he's so right, right, Jerry? Yeah. I mean, he, he makes it sound funny and and, and and kind of like a throwaway remark, but he's right on target. I mean... That people must people who put money into some of these illiquid investments at, at at these terms. I mean, if you did it ten years ago, you know, power to you. I mean, you did great, right? But at these levels, if you still continue to do that to that extent, you you must be asking yourself some of these questions that he's raising. Does anyone seriously doubt that part of the attraction of PE is an increasing acceptance among investors that they have to get very aggressive to reach their goals, but still possess an absolute aversion to living under the true reported volatility this aggression, aggression entails? You know, it's almost like uh, we're dealing with unsophisticated people, people who cannot uh, face reality to some degree, especially when you... There's plenty of papers out there, which he's probably written one or two, that talks about how the high correlation of PE has with small cap listed stocks, just owning the small cap listed stocks, that um, has a high correlation with with uh, private equity. But wait, but once again, you'd have to report that maybe daily or weekly, and it's uh, exchange traded, so there's not uh, the lack of transparency so that's no good i mean of course at some point you or at some level you could say that 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 these kind of investments they kind of play to the human dna right because we we don't really want to look at the negatives right we prefer just to focus on the positives and here you have an investment that does it for you right as you say it doesn't have to do mark to market so you don't see the true level of volatility and a lot of the returns that are promised uh, are probably never realized and you find that out after the event so to speak so uh, since you can't do anything about it you're locked in for 10 years um you know you, you don't pay as much attention and that's exactly what we would prefer that people get invested they get their strategic asset allocation done they they either do as you suggest jerry obviously you you prefer that people trend follow everything um, but even if they just put a meaningful not a two or three percent, but a meaningful allocation to a diversified trend-following portfolio as part of a wider uh, portfolio. You know, it's better than doing nothing for sure. And you know, twenty-five percent, thirty percent—that that's meaningful, I think. So even if they did that and just let it run for a, for a long time, would be great. But that's just not how things work, unfortunately. Yet, maybe at some point 
will be used at the ATMs of the industry again. You know, we've said it before, markets always change, but then also they never change and they stay the same because human behavior doesn't seem to change. And there have always been these faces of greed and then people become emotional and irrational. And, you know, it's kind of like in cycles. We've seen those things before. And I find it hard to believe that institutional investors and you know, it's not that they don't pay attention to markets. They have some clever people working for them, on the face of it at least. And yet, they're moving out on the risk curve because they can no longer find the required yields in government bonds or investment-grade corporate bonds. And they willingly and knowingly go out into the private equity and private investing, private markets, uh, high-yield space, all of that type of stuff. And they know it. I think they know about the risk and they're kind of like forced to do it because there's no alternative, they're underfunded and if they don't do it, they'll have a liquidity problem on their pension plans and all that type of stuff. And look, I mean, we've said it before, let's not forecast anything and become too clever and try to outsmart ourselves. Normally that ends in some sort of failure. But I mean, the underlying dynamics of that doesn't look healthy to me and when the card the first card like a domino starts toppling and they need the money they cannot get it from the private equity thing they cannot get it from their private market thing they cannot get it from their crowdfunded investing that they've done and maybe that high yield bond stop trading or is default and you get absolutely nothing back so where do you go you go to everything that's liquid and has nav on a daily basis um it's not only us. I don't want to say it's only the CTAs that will be able to uh, provide liquidity at that point in time. But from the, say, alternative um, uh, investing space, we are the most liquid, I'd say. Because even even the funds, like, you know, there might be long-short equity funds who you could say, well, you know, they could possibly be daily liquid, but generally they are not. They have kind of like monthly, you know, liquidity points. But we are. No, I mean, I think you're 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 spot on, Moritz, and and you even forgot some of the forestry that they also seem to have bought in the last few years. Uh, they're not going to be able to get any money from that. No, the, the problem, I think, and and just taking this to a kind of a wider macro uh, conversation, since we haven't got too many questions this week, so we might as well spend some time on 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 going a little bit off topic, but. The, the, the problem is if you look at what's happened in the last few years and the way policies have been you know been handled probably very deliberately is that it's encouraged a lot of these pension plans and 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 you know investors like that and forced in some uh, to some extent to buy up all sorts of debt right to to keep this uh, fuel coming in and the problem is of course that at some point you would think that it would be normal. It's not. It's not a forecast. It's just a you know a, a fact that interest rates that you know usually tend to normalize um, you know at at some point, and when they do, they're really going to be in trouble. And I think there is a reason why some of these you know really um, very successful uh, investors over time. Um, starts to talk about how they worry about the pension fund system, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, can you imagine if the if there was even started to come doubt, and and I'm sure there there are in some places doubt about the solvency of the pension fund system? I mean, I think we we would have a much bigger crisis on our hands than what we saw in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Look, I mean, um, I, I I agree, and this is our opinion. This is kind of like a feeling, and it brings me back to. Uh, the interview, um, well, it doesn't bring me back. I'm mentioning it for the first time. I don't know if you had uh, brought it up last weekend. Uh, the interview with uh, Stanley Druckenmiller on Bloomberg. Have you seen that? It's exactly the difference between opinion and fact, right? So when you listen to that, it's pretty clear that in his opinion, the US or let's say the world was kind of like, you know, pretty much on a growth path full employment, low inflation, super low interest rates and high deficits. So you kind of like go like, well, the opinion there is, uh, this is kind of like a weird setting. Interest rates should be higher in an environment like that, right? Or deficits should be lower. Um, and this isn't going to end well. So if you followed your opinion, you may sit back and say, well, I don't want to be long any stocks. This is looking too lofty. But then he's also, you know, probably this is his key quality, say, uh, well, it's my opinion. 
let's look at the facts. The facts are central banks have the liquidity gates wide open. There's a president that will do pretty much everything, I guess, uh, to support the market and uh, move it on a new high into the election year. Um, inflation is low, so how can you not be long risky assets? Um, so two different things. Um, I think neither of us, neither of the three of us is required to kind of like think in that way. It's, uh, intellectually nice to, you know, uh, uh, use your brain in that way and, and think about, you know, what could happen, that type of stuff. We just, we just play the cards that we're being dealt with the prices that are rolling off the tape. Um, and we'll, we're following the equities higher as they move higher. They, the opinion may be that this is too high, but who cares? They'll turn around at some point, I guess. If they go to the moon, that's great too. Then we're still going to be long. But if they turn around, that's the point where we'll get out without any opinion, just based on the fact of the day. And, um, and everything else is kind of like blah, blah, blah. Another thing that I learned that I, I wasn't really aware of. So we talk, you talked about interest rates and, and, and in, you know inflation and all of those things, which obviously people haven't really experienced inflation, at least in the official numbers for a while. Well, one thing that caught my attention this week was uh, also that apparently the US and, and the European central banks, they measure inflation very differently, which I wasn't aware of. Um, so in the US, where the inflation is much closer to the 2% target that they have, and where obviously interest rates are higher, uh, they include a 40% portion for, um, they call it shelter, so it's kind of housing cost, uh, where there's definitely been some increase uh, in the past few years and so on and so forth. But in Europe, we don't do that at all, which is why we can't really get our inflation numbers up to a level where it warrants the end of um, the negative interest rates we have. So, so first of all, you could probably argue that interest rates in Europe are, are artificially too low because the inflation number is too low. Uh, and then, of course, this week, the Swedish uh, central bank, which was the first central bank to go into negative interest rates, as far as I recall, ended that. So, you know, we talked about a lot of illiquid stuff and how it's being sold and all of that and, 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 and so on and so forth. And if we're now starting to see the first signs of this end to this uh, kind of downwards move, at least in the official uh, uh, rates, um, then that's going to be another challenge. I think that uh, these people are, are incredibly aware of exactly what's going on. And it's just uh, they're relying upon the power of, uh, you know, being part of the group. So if we all do this, we all kind of lose money or do this and we all pile into it, we can, uh, maybe if we all lose, then that'll be, I'm just not going to do this on my own. I'm going to take some comfort in the fact that it's a, it's a, everyone, it's, you know, everyone's kind of uh, going to, into this PE thing. But I do think it's quite a bit different to, um, to position the portfolio in a more aggressive way and what's, what Cliff is talking about. And so I talked to my friends and they're like, yeah, I'm moving my stocks around. I'm going to sell my bonds and I'm going to do more stocks. Maybe I'll do NASDAQ, you know, higher vol, emerging market. Okay, you know, that's a move to aggressiveness. I get that. But to according to Cliff, there's a big part of this move into PE is strictly due to pretending. We're pretending we don't have this volatility. So it's not even just moving. I mean, is PE more volatile than the S&P? Okay, whatever, I don't know. I guess it is, probably. Small stocks might be more volatile. But it seems to me that he's just calling out this whole idea that um, it's not just moving aggressive like a normal investor would. I'm taking more risk. They don't size their positions based upon vol. So if they buy NASDAQ stocks or small stocks or emerging market stocks, by definition, they're taking on more risk. I mean, we wouldn't do it that way. But um, no, they're making this move so they don't have to mark the market. I think it's pretty bad. I mean, that's pretty sad and sick. And then Cliff ends it in a good way by saying, liquid, truly uncorrelated alternatives actually diversify a portfolio, both short-term and long-term. They offer real diversification, not the diversification that comes from not reporting actual returns. The alternatives have painful periods you have to live through and all of their excruciating glory. 
So I, I, of course, we all like that he ended it that way for a big plug for, you know, certainly what we do and he does and other things he does as well, not just his CTA trend following, diversified fund, but other things as well, probably. So, yeah. And, and the bottom line is, you know, people don't give us lots of money because uh, trend following in currencies and in commodities, a big part of what we do, maybe 50% of what most uh, CTAs do, has tremendously, dramatically underperformed just um, you know, trend following bonds and stocks only. But trend following bonds and stocks only, if there's anyone out there who does that, that probably is not uh, what has performed as well as just buy and hold. Back to what I said uh, 30 minutes ago, which is that uh, we're longer in these uptrends. If you're just long the index, you know, you're long the index. With If you're actively trading trend following, even long term, you know, you're getting some shorts on, you're getting some flats on, you got to get back in at the highs when those shorts and flat positions go back to the highs. and Or you just having fun just being long the index and, and never doing a trade for a year or two or 10 or whatever. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a great uh, article he put out. It's a, it's a very important topic. So um, I'm sure we'll we'll come back to it again. What else caught your attention in um, in the Twitter land? Well, I like this uh, one article, uh, a piece that Morgan Housel wrote on Friday, and a big fan, and I tweeted it way too many times, little bits and pieces. Uh, I used to just tweet uh, the best thing I could from an article and let it sit, but now I tweet two, three, four, five times because some of the stuff is just so great and well-written, and I like it, and... Um, getting out my, implicitly my opinions, I agree with uh, some of these things. Um, it's about prediction, the psychology of prediction, and we don't like predicting, we don't, we don't think we do predict, although I have heard people say, well, everyone predicts, you are making a prediction. But with trend following, I think it's more probabilities, and uh, I've often countered that, well, I don't say I could call us good at predicting or predicting because we're right on less than half of our predictions are trades so uh, we're not we're not ones to be following this as relates to any any sort of uh, prediction of what the future looks like short term long term whatever but he starts it out by saying I don't know if you th- I thought this was sort of profound I don't know if I really understand it but um, I can maybe explain what he meant but he says uh, in excel the spreadsheet program the difference between wrong and early isn't that big of a deal in word it's enormous what do you think I think I need a bit more explanation. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, so I think what he's saying can is, mean in many different things. Yeah, I think what he's saying is that um, you know when you're wrong or you're slightly early, uh, you know the spreadsheet doesn't have much to say about it. It doesn't look like that big of a deal if you're a year early. Uh, a lot of people have been calling for the stock market to go down uh, for many many years. But if you're a little early, not a big deal. But if you're writing copy and putting your opinions out there and people are reading oh. them, it's, I guess it's a bigger deal. But anyways, uh, the second part of the article that I liked, and I've said this many times, I think ironically, I'm not a fan of looking at history of what has happened in the past, but I am a fan of looking at a back test with thousands of trades with a systematic approach, buying breakouts or moving average crossovers is much different than uh, thinking history is going to repeat itself and um, he says, uh, history is the study of surprising events. Prediction is using historical data to forecast what events will happen next. The most important events in history are the big outliers, the record-breaking events. But those record-setting events, when they occurred, had no precedent. A lot there for us because that's how we make all of our money on the big outliers that have never happened before. That's why trend following is, can be so powerful and profitable especially when crazy things are happening like uh, negative interest rates or overvalued stock markets or crude going from 90 to 20. Uh, the CTAs are just dumb enough to hang on and follow the price and not ask any questions. So I think um, yeah, history is not a good guide for the future. The historical events you know, in the, in the future will uh, hopefully be profitable with our trend-following systems, but the particular markets and the way the markets move and the fundamentals, of course, 
driving those markets will be much different than we've ever seen in history. I mean, I think it's. I mean, we say that a lot, and we have to, and we have to put it in our own risk disclosure all the time about past performance not being indicative of future returns. What I think history does do well, though, it creates this sandbox for all of us to to test our systems and our rules to be robust and to be able to handle essentially what was unknown at the time when when they were designed. We we didn't know about uh, certain things. And so I think that's what history and historical data is really good at uh, for us, knowing full well that it probably won't look exactly the same in the future, but uh, but it allows us to, um, yeah, as I said, build something that is capable uh, of dealing with an uncertain uh, future because that's essentially what it's going to be. So that's kind of how I, I, I look at it. It's very hard not to think that history you know plays some part and so so this is not a prediction because that would be um, against my uh, against my nature to do but if you think about 2021 this is just a fact so if you take 2021 and if you take we we all familiar with Fibonacci and I know a lot of people who who trade they look at Fibonacci because there is some there is some importance of course to this sequence of numbers and i just challenge everyone to go back and 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 take 2021 and start detracting the fibonacci chain and what you'll find is that it's going to give you pretty much all the big highs or lows back to 1932 and that i think is not coincidence and i think that's where sometimes history does have uh, you know an interesting way of "Quote unquote," repeating itself. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I I don't know. Um, I, I I don't think history repeats, but like we said before, it rhymes. I like looking back at uh, as much historical data as I as I can. I also like to have a look at uh, periods in the markets which um, are very very long time ago, the twenties, the nineteen tens. You know, to the extent that I can, and uh, kind of like live through those times and um and see what's been going on there and what's been driving markets and i guess you know with rhyming i mean there's always some crazy stuff that comes back in those markets because we're human beings and we're overdoing things we're becoming too greedy and then we're becoming desperate and it kind of like cycles around that thing um the fibonacci things really i i, I don't like i just don't know about them i don't use them i know they're the magic numbers but I also want to, you know, one of the things, and I just read this, uh, I think, yesterday or two days ago, is um, is the history of uh, Mr. Gan. You know the Gan fans, and this also, right? So apparently this person has become uh, very wealthy trading those Gan fans and channels and all that type of stuff, and everybody followed him. Then he said uh, the Dow Jones is never going to go higher than 380 points, ever. Ever, 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 and uh, and that was the end of him. So he was stubborn on uh, on his technical system, his technical indicator, which has worked a couple of times in a row until it failed massively and um, made him go bankrupt and lose his following. So I don't know about these things. Those technical things and those patterns and charts. Um, some people, they really believe in that and there's a cup and handle and then there's this sliding wedge and it forms into a saucer and therefore with that head and shoulder it then has to go up. I guess, you know, if enough people believe in that, um, then, then there, there may be something to it. Uh, but to me, this is a different discipline. It's a different technique compared to what we're doing. It's a different way of working with price data in the markets and it's a different way to putting on positions. So I I like our statistically driven, quantitative driven beat breakouts, whatever it is, much more than finding those chart patterns. But again, I may be ignorant because I haven't done my homework and haven't immersed myself in it as much as I did with with trend following. I, but just 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 to to jump in here, I don't think any of us would change the way we do things, but to me it was only a it was only a question about you know 
do history play a role? And and I think, as I said, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself exactly. I think we all agree on that. But I do think that there are certain historical relations that is important and not that we would change anything in the way we trade, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised because there are all these historical links from 2021 and back in history that somehow 2021 will be an interesting year, one way or the other. It may be 22, maybe late 2020, who knows? It's not a, an exact science. I'm just saying that those things I think is interesting. And also I think, again, uh, history, historical data, that what we really want it for is, is to create that sandbox where we can develop our rules that we will apply, but but that they are robust enough to deal with an uncertain future because we all agree we none of us know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. Well, um, this is a first. I cannot agree with Niels, but I have nothing to add. So uh, I'll keep reading this article, which I really liked. And uh, I do think it's somewhat, I think people could explain it better than me, but it, it, is a, it is sort of interesting that uh, history means nothing for the future, but looking at those historical breakouts and systematic in the trades uh, kind of captures how people handled and what they were thinking and during those periods. And that, of course, is worth a lot, that historical data and that uh, system that you choose based upon the trends and the taking the small losses. And that is something you can bank on, but not how it manifests itself in the future. And we can, all, we can even look at the trades we've done over the past 10 years versus the 10 years before and we can see a lot of, you know, nothing uh, looks, everything has been happening in the world in the past 10 years. Is, a lot of it is just unprecedented. Um, I think he's quoting uh, Taleb here, if I remember correctly. But he says, uh, realizing the future may not look like the past. And indeed, that phrase may as well be a synonym of the word history. Is a special kind of skill that is not generally looked highly upon by the analytical forecasting community. And I embrace that so wholeheartedly that uh, I think it's a huge edge for us. You know, we're sort of following the trends and price only and being systematic and rule-based and doing all the trades we should do. But uh, maybe a tad different is that um, we don't even respect the forecasting and we're fading. We're trying to always fade and have a mindset that fades current news and historical news. And one of the funny things I always think about is, you know, um, you know, what's a big trade for me now, like pal palladium or some of the big profits I have in the stocks, you know. I've divided, I've come up with these systems, and that probably, for instance, um, my exit in palladium will probably have no influence from historical palladium whatsoever, you know, because it's my, the systems that I've chosen, it's dominated by the other 99 markets that I trade, and probably palladium probably has very little impact. So I'm looking at palladium saying, well, how are you going to handle palladium? Because the last time palladium did this, I, no, stop. It means nothing. I don't care what palladium has ever done. It's insignificant. It's inconsequential to how I'm going to exit this trade. But I think, uh, yeah, not looking uh, at analytics or forecasting and not trying to see what happened the last time the S&P had this particular valuation or this particular type of trend is a big, huge edge. I mean, I think that's actually one point that I I think is, is quite important and, and, and quite interesting, and that is that when we look at history, it's not like we're developing our models to trade every single market individually as you know what historically has worked well on Palladium, for example. We choose our parameters based on a whole portfolio of markets, and therefore, it's um, yeah. I mean, history is probably even less important in 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 that way, uh, or at least history of each individual market is less important because we're choosing universal parameters, and that's why it's even more fascinating that it continues to to work, in my opinion. And he says, you know, the the a lot of uh, stock people and uh, non-trend and system people. They say that the four most dangerous words in investing are, it's different this time. And he quotes somebody for saying the 12 most dangerous words in investing are, quote, the four most dangerous words in investing are, it's difficult this time. So the opposite of that, and I think that's totally true. It's always different. It's uh, every single time it's different. And uh, the only thing that uh, we can really rely upon is the consistent application 
of our systematic approach. Um, and even if it doesn't work, it has no, that has no bearing on the future trades as well. Losing faith after the in inevitable losses that take place during a sound probabilistic predictions can cause people to quit predicting even when they're technically good at it. Maintaining confidence during losses adds a whole different level of skill. So true, 50% of what we bring to the table and the reason people should hire us is because we're actually going to do these trades and only those trades. And I wish you would have replaced the word prediction with uh, probabilistic trading because I don't think we are predicting, are we? We're sort of uh, putting a trade on based upon the trend and we have no, um, and it's most of them are going to lose. Yeah, no, I agree. We play the probabilities. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Do you, I just want to, you know, listening to you guys about thinking about this technical trading or the, the chart-based trading stuff again. And I know of, uh, you know, one or two people who seem to be successful doing that on a probably prop type of basis. Uh, I may have mentioned the name Peter Brand, people like that. But then also, um, what just occurred to me is like, you know, we as an industry, if you want to call it that, there are many successful CTAs, Chesapeake done with very long-term track records, and there's quite a high number of firms who run trend-following strategies, and they exist, and they run a considerable amount of money. I really, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of any firms that say, all I'm doing is trading cup and handle, salsa, wedges type of things, or Fibonacci lines, and this is, this is the premise of my fund. If you invest with me, then you're definitely going to get the head and shoulders on the S&P every time it happens. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think these firms exist. And, and if, if this technique were so great, then I think the firms should exist. And they would be there, but kind of like they aren't. And I find that strange. And I guess it's also because the, the head and shoulder is really something different for every person that looks at the thing. You find a head and shoulder on a weekly basis. You find a head and shoulder on a minute basis, on a daily basis. It's kind of like, who there is, um, there is no the head and shoulder. So if, if there's really like super, super powerful stuff in that Fibonacci thing, then there should be at least one fund going for the thing. So I think, okay, so I think these are two different things. So when we talk about our industry, right, we talk about things that can be rules-based, and automated, et cetera, et cetera. I think the challenge that you allude to, and that is a lot of, the, if you talk about chart patterns, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's very subjective how you uh, look at them. There are few who have been able to mathematically define some of these things, you know, and I think in those cases, I think you, you can find them in our industry. But I, I, I think the problem is that these are very hard things to, uh, to automate and build, you know, hard and fast rules uh, around. And, and that's why you don't see them. I don't think if you, you know, for me, it's not a question of whether you do, is, is Fibonacci's, this Fibonacci sequence important? I think it is. I think there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that it has some level of significance. But that doesn't mean that you can put it into a trend following system and, and trade it like that. That I don't think probably could be done but for me it's not a one or the other it just means in our industry we use certain techniques to apply to markets in order to do trend following it doesn't mean that there couldn't be other techniques that couldn't be applied as a you know in a in a completely systematic form that are irrelevant i think some of these things are relevant but you know once you get into the carbon sources and all of those things uh, i think that's a different uh, category probably we have a couple of questions. Um, do you have any more tweets, Jerry, you want to no, run through? Let's uh, go for it. Okay, okay, cool. All right, the first thing, I think actually a, a good question. This is from, um, from Mike, who asks, as I've been listening to the show, it's starting to feel like trend following is simply a long volatility strategy that emphasizes the systematic element to trading. I feel it's more complex than that, but how would you differentiate it from other volatility strategies? I thought that was a good question, actually. So, Maurice, do you want to jump into this first? or, um, or Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm happy to go for that. Um, so, <laughs> if there's no volatility in anything, nobody makes any money, right? If you're buying a, an instrument at point A and point A never really starts moving, then nobody makes money, regardless of whether you're long or short, whether you're trading a trend-following system or a mean reversion system, then you just don't make any money. 
So kind of like everybody needs volatility to make money. What I don't, what I'd like to avoid is to put trend following into the this is a long volatility strategy, and if volatility rises from a level that's low to a level that's higher, that you will be making money. It doesn't have that attribute. We still need to be seeing a trend. Volatility could be highly choppy, sideways, very volatile, and it may really hurt us, right? There could be tremendous periods of volatility where we get in and out of positions all the time and we're hitting our initial stop, we're putting position back on, we're hitting our initial stop. So volatility by itself doesn't help. There needs to be an underlying trend and only then will it work. If there is a trend and if there is volatility, then great. That's normally a good a good period for us. What are your thoughts, um, Jerry? I would just make the distinction between volatility and trend. I'm pretty sure that um, the best trends are ones that have that start initially with very low volatility and go uh, a ways without the volatility picking up. It's just a nice smooth trend, and then that there seems to be some evidence that at the end of the trade, when the volatility is the greatest, that's when the trend might have a tendency to end. So uh, trend and smooth and a nice calm ride up is really preferable. And volatility is a, is a different subject um, where we have to size based on volatility. Then usually when the trend gets going, we have to deal with a volatility that's much higher than it was when we first did the trade. Or um, And how do, we, how do we deal with that? So we've talked about that many times. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think uh, I I know I think I know where you're coming from, Mike, because I think a lot of people talk about how trend followers like volatility, but what we really like is divergence, meaning we like expansion of volatility at the same time as we have direction in price. So that's one thing. Uh, I mean, frankly, the, this year is kind of a good example, even though I'm only quoting equity volatility. But I mean, the VIX year to date is down 40%, almost 38%. Of course, it hasn't been, it's not a straight line, but but it has been going down uh, to some extent, yet it's been a really good year for, for many trend following strategies. Um, but I completely agree with Jerry. I think this is a really important point to note. And that is a true trend that we can make money from often gets a lot less volatile after the initial breakout. And then volatility picks up again toward the end of the trend. So we're not really making the money from the volatility itself. We're making the money from the direction that comes, you know, with maybe initial volatility and then volatility at the end. So uh, so I, I would, I mean, I think we all agree that it's, we, we, we don't feel that what we do is just a long volatility strategy. So I hope that makes sense to you, uh, Mike. Thanks for the question. And then we have a question from uh, Drew um, and um, and who starts out by saying that, Jerry, you nailed it last week. So I think we had a question from Drew last week and uh, so you clearly nailed the, the answer. And then Drew goes on to say, my question this week is less of a question but instead something I'm just curious uh, your thoughts on. As trend followers, we say we don't buy individual asset classes as they draw down and we wait until a new high are made. But we say the exact opposite when investing in trend following in a trend following manager. I believe Niels last week said invest when uh, they are in a drawdown, not at all time highs regarding a trend following fund manager. To a new trader or someone unfamiliar with the mechanism of trend following these statements sounds hypocritical it's like you are saying you are value investors or trend following managers but not individual assets right who i mean since you were quoting me for saying it um, so the point i'm trying to make here drew is that if you look at our performance it's kind of mean reverting because when we are in drawdowns, if you look at our track records, uh, those of us who have been around for a while, um, you know, the best time to invest in, in these strategies is through during the drawdown, because then you enjoy the ride up to the back up to the new all time high um, that, that we're making. So, so, so there is definitely uh, something to be said about you shouldn't trend follower a trend follower. Um, because then you end up buying the breakouts, the new highs, and you're going to suffer 
you know, pretty big on, on, on the drawdowns as well. So I don't think it's anything about it being hypocritical, anything like that. It's a state, it's not an opinion, it's a fact that it's better to buy these strategies uh, when they are in a drawdown, for sure. Um, but when we look at us as trend followers, it, this is not to say that value investing doesn't work. It clearly works for some. But in 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 the way we've constructed our strategies, we are looking for breakouts. We're not looking to buy a, a falling market. We're looking to buy a market as it makes new highs or breaks out of some kind of range. Um, and that's just the way the strategy is uh, designed. But I agree, it it's kind of it's kind of funny that when you want to invest with a manager, you kind of have to do the opposite as to what we do inside the strategy. That might be you know that might be um, counterintuitive, but nevertheless, that's what the evidence suggests. I actually don't think it's counterintuitive. Um, when we trade a trend following strategy, then every single trade, every single position that we're putting on is you know we're buying the high or we're selling the low, and we have to follow through with that sequence systematically and without exception. Now the probability of that process means that and we know that not every trade is a winner so like with you know rolling dice and everything there in any system in any game of chance in any you know process of probability even though we're doing the right thing with buying the highs there will be those periods where it doesn't work which is the equivalent of a drawdown in our space but because it is a system and because the long-term statistics are there to prove that the system is robust and can work, you have to follow through and continue doing the thing. So eventually the system will display its edge and you can get back into a period of time where you will be able to exploit that edge and make money again. So I see the drawdown as part of the process. It's a you know, kind of like the, the the byproduct that you cannot avoid, and therefore, if you if you can buy the drawdown with a CTA, I would say with a good CTA, a proven CTA, that is a good thing to do, in my opinion. Why do I say with a good CTA, with a proven CTA? Because there's, I guess there's there's the drawdowns, and there's different types of drawdowns. There's if you have a CTA down 50%, maybe down 60% trading at high volatility, the firm trying to run a business, maybe at that point in time trying to survive. I don't know. There is just, you know, people need to be mindful of the fact that those CTAs, there is a, a probability of risk of ruin. And I think that probability increases the larger your drawdown gets. So if, if you know, you need to have a good, a good judgment for that CTA to put the money in in a substantial drawdown. Yeah, cool. Any thoughts from your side, uh, Jerry? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think that um, my analysis of this is that uh, I've not seen that it's better to buy the drawdowns, but that it's the same. Yeah, so um, I think it's the same. And... I think uh, the probabilities of owning a CTA, since the CTA is has a profitable system and has an edge, uh, it's always a good time to invest in a CTA. And at the same time, the CTA knows there is no edge in buying breaks and selling rallies. So I think uh, it makes perfect sense to, uh, it's like, you know, if you had a coin that uh, or a dice that coin it was heads 51% of the time and yet it had 10 tails in a row would you still buy it of course uh, because it has this perpetual edge so I think that's sort of the difference between the two the two uh, seemingly contradictory ideas well thanks very much uh, Drew for, for your question let me quickly run through uh, where we stand uh, about a week uh, from uh, the year ending in terms of uh, trend following uh, or CTA performance um, this is as of Thursday as usual Friday I think was um, not very much uh, either up or down uh, as such um, so anyways the beta 50 index was down half a percent for December so far up 6.54 for the year 
Sokgen CT index down 63 basis points for December, uh, up 6.26 for the year. The Sokgen trend index is down 0.88% for December, up 8.87. The Sokgen short-term traders index down 0.45% for December, up 2.94 for the year. And the bridge alternatives index, I have it showing down 1.84 and up 7.57 for the year. With that, anything else you guys want to bring up before we uh, wrap up for this week? Yes, I agree. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is uh, the last um, edition before uh, Christmas, so we definitely want to wish you a very warm and and wonderful Christmas. And and thank you so much for uh, for tuning in uh, each week. Uh, we really enjoy these conversations, and we hope that uh, that you continue to take some value uh, from them and we can't wait to be back with one more edition this year which will be of course just before uh, new year so um, from jerry moritz and me thanks so much for tuning in this week and we look forward to being back with you in about a week's time Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.